Good morning, folks. So glad you're here. It's great to see some of you for the first time in a long time, and those who join us online. So glad you're you're doing that as well. Um, I'm Pastor Paul. I, I need to begin with a with a pastoral confession, though. I was so inspired by the cool fall weather we had this morning that I helped. I got my wife to help me color coordinate some fall clothing, um, as you can see, to kind of go with my autumn palette. Anyway, we're pretty pumped. I'm really pumped about tonight. Um, this is our inaugural sunset service. Um, we have our crack weather team on site, and by on site, I mean out of the parking lot. They've assured us cool weather, clear, and uh, just as a token, just as a remembrance for this inaugural service, in your, in your communion uh, basket is a Four Oaks Church sunset service decal. And if you do start to look at that right now, don't take communion right now. Just wait, okay? Just we'll, we'll, we'll do that together later. But this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41. Thanks to the Feldmans for reading that. Rick, it was great to hear your Brooklyn accent um, decide for that. It's, it's a beast of a chapter, which interestingly is all about dreams, right? Now, we've all had the experience of waking up from a nightmare that was so real, so vivid. For a moment, we weren't sure, is it, did, is it happening? Did it happen or did it not? And we're slowly come to that realization. We're relieved to realize, ah, it was, it was just a dream. Now, I personally have had a recurring dream. This is actually very true. And my recurring nightmare is that I've gone through a whole semester of classes at UT Knoxville, and I realize as I get to the end of the semester that I have not attended any classes whatsoever. And not only that, it's final exam day, and I've got to take my accounting test, and I am stranded all the way across campus. I have no way to get there. And clearly, this is all PTSD from my freshman year, right? Okay, let the reader understand. But here, dreams are the occurrence or the occasion of Joseph's deliverance. This is finally the moment we've all been waiting for. We're finally to Genesis 42, where this is the payoff chapter, right? Where all this has been leading, we think. But we need to understand something, church, that this story is much bigger than Joseph. This is, this is much bigger than, than Joseph gets a get-out-of-jail-free card and he figures out life finally and his obedience is finally paid off. This is way bigger than that. See, this chapter, this story is about God working in the life of Joseph for the future of God's people. It's about God working in the life of Joseph to make him a witness to the most powerful man, the most powerful court, and the most powerful nation in all of the world. And there is much, much that we can learn from this passage. So three points this morning, divided up into three sections. Here they are. We're going to talk about first the nightmares of Pharaoh. Secondly, the words of Joseph. And finally, the favor of God. So let's pray. Lord, we need your help this morning. <clears throat> Lord, it's, it's, it's a long chapter, but it is strikingly simple. It's about you reigning over all. It's about the little gods of Egypt coming to do battle with the God of the universe and failing miserably. And in this, Lord, we are reminded that our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, preach that to our hearts. Convince our hearts of it <clears throat> this morning. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. The nightmares of Pharaoh. Look at verse one. 
Pharaoh's dreams begin at the Nile. And you need to know that for the ancient world, the Nile was, the, was the, our cultural equivalent of the French Riviera, right? It was the hub of everything. See, the Nile would flood every year, and it would produce crops and growth and commerce. It was a symbol of wealth. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of fertility, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And the Egyptians were completely dependent upon the Nile in every way, in every aspect of their life. And what would happen at certain times of the year is that cows would come down to the Nile and they would wade into the water and the reeds to graze. It was hot, there was insects, there was flies. And if you're a cow, flies are a problem, right? So they would go into the water. And so Pharaoh's probably like envisioning, this is a great dream, right? It's a nice dream. And this cow's coming out of the water. This is a choice set of cattle. Um, I mean, these are the cows that are on their way to the menu at Shula's. You get what I'm saying? It's like those kind of cows. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these big cows are eaten by these skinny cows. Then he has a second dream. It's kind of equally bizarre. These big ears of grain, stalks, corn, wheat, whatever, eaten, devoured by these smaller stalks. And and for us in the 21st century, these can sound cartoonish, right? This is like the dream sequence out of Pixar's Inside Out. This is just something quaint, something, something kind of cartoonish. But for Pharaoh, we need to understand this was anything but. I mean, this was truly a horror flick of the worst kind. This was a violent cannibalism. And and if you think about it just for a second, you'll, you'll get the idea. All of these death and destruction and blood and flesh and cannibal-like behavior from one animal to another, from one stalk of corn or wheat to another. And it says, and we can completely understand this, he woke up disturbed. In the, in the Hebrew, it could really be he was freaked out. And so he called in his interpreters. Now remember, we said this last week, dreams were a big deal here. Dreams in this culture were seen as, as pointing to the future. And so a whole cottage industry had sprung up around the interpretation of dreams. They had their books, their tarot cards, their astrology uh, booklets. They were all supposed to be weighing in. And so Pharaoh, this, this dream was so disturbing. It was so unusual. He called everyone in immediately. And it says they couldn't interpret. Now understand something. Don't think for a second that they didn't try. Of course they tried. But Pharaoh was not satisfied. He knew that they were just winging it. He knew that they were just spitting in the wind. And now we see that the stage is set because there is no answer in Pharaoh's court. So we are introduced now, once again, reintroduced to the good old cupbearer. Remember him? That guy who stabbed Joseph in the back and totally forgot him when Joseph's helped to predict that he was going to get out of prison. And remember, when it says he forgot Joseph, remember, it's not like he, he, he forgot him in terms of his memory. It means that he consciously chose not to go there with Pharaoh. I'm not going to mess with a good thing. I'm out of prison. I've got my, I've got my walk-in papers. I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. And we don't know what motivates him now, except the sovereign hand of God, right? The, the, the heart of the king is like, water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it where he may. He may be looking for an opportunity to advance himself. I mean, you could see him because he's a confidant of Pharaoh's, right? 
sidling up to, to Pharaoh saying, hey, Pharaoh, I know a guy, right? He pulls the I know a guy speech, and Pharaoh, and it's, a, it's, it's just a symptom of his desperateness and his urgency. Listen to the way Pharaoh responds, and you can see this in verses 13 and 14. Turn there just for a second. It says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him. These are all terse, one-word commands. I mean, it is to denote to us the rapidity to which Pharaoh is getting everyone around him to spring into action. He's, he's gotten, he's brought, he's summoned, he's rushed. What's Moses' point with this? We need to understand that this is not a position the most powerful man in the world was used to being in. You see, he's a god, literally, worshipped as such. Whenever there was a season of fertility in the land, in the land it was Pharaoh always took the credit as one who was living righteously before the gods or making the right sorts of sacrifices. But here we find Pharaoh impotent. We find him afraid. We find that there is no help to be had by anyone, from anyone. And again, Moses is trying to show us that the most powerful nation, the most powerful leader, and the most powerful people on earth are being brought to their knees. There is a palpable fear that permeates that whole palace. Now, let me ask you a question, Four Oaks. If you were to pick one word to describe the mood of our current cultural climate, what word would you choose? Some of us, some of you might be tempted to say anger. And that that would be understandable. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of conflict it seems to be building and building every day. But understand this from a, from a psychological standpoint. The root of all anger is not anger, it's fear. See, anger is just the symptom. Fear is the root cause. Think about this for yourself. Think about the things that you're animated about in your life. Think about the things that get you on the internet, that get you on social media, that, that compel you, that drive you, and, and that work that you get worked up about. I promise you if, you, if you get self-reflective and self-aware and start asking questions, you'll realize this is a real indication of a deep-rooted fear in my life. And let me tell you, we are a culture that is deeply afraid. We're afraid of disease. We're afraid of losing our way of life. We're afraid of racism. We're afraid of losing our rights. We're afraid of losing our financial investments. We're afraid of losing our relationships. In fact, I would say that we are a culture in the middle of a nightmare. We are a culture in the middle of a bad dream because everything culturally, that, and even as Christians, that we have been relying on, everything that we could say, I can count on that thing has been completely stripped away. And so we have to ask, in the middle of this cultural moment, who is God calling us to be? What is God calling us to do? What is he calling me to say? And that's the position that Joseph finds himself in. It's the position we find ourselves in, Four Oaks. And we want to learn 
from Joseph's witness. Let's look at point number two, the words of Joseph. So one of my favorite books, it's a long book, but worthy of your attention, Alexander Dumas's Count of Monte Cristo. You've heard me mention it before. But the main character in this book is Edmond Dantes, and he is getting married to the love of his life named Mercedes, or Lexus, or Toyota, or one of those cars, right? I believe it's Mercedes. And it's the morning of his wedding, and he's getting ready to marry the love of his life. And you know about that morning of the wedding, right? Anticipation, excitement, and, and Dumas unpacks the whole scene. The village is gathered around. They're celebrating. It's a feast. And then all of a sudden, into the middle of this fray, Edmund is called into the constable's office to answer a few questions. And just like that, his life is forever changed. Don't have time to go into all of it, but basically there was three people conspiring against him. And so in the morning, he is getting married. But in the evening, he is on the way to the Chateau d'If, which is the notorious island prison off the coast of Marseille, or as we say in East Tennessee, Marcellus. You get the idea, right? Just like that. That's how fast your life can change. We know it. That's Joseph in reverse. Now, I want you to think about this sequence here for a minute. He went from Palestine to Pitt, and then Pitt to Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's house to prison, and now he's going from prison to palace. And it's hard to overstate the suddenness of this change and how much his life has been transformed just in the snap of, the thing, of his fingers. In verse 15, I think, is, is 15 and 16 are the pivotal verses in which everything hinges. Look at verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can, you can interpret it. Now, if you're Joseph, you had to know, right, what's going through your mind? Finally, that idiot cupbearer finally came through for me, Right? Finally, an opportunity. Finally, an audience with Pharaoh. Finally, freedom. Free at last. What will Joseph say? Kent Hughes, in his sermon on this passage, tells the story about Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson's with the Lord now, but he was one of the right-hand men of, of President Richard Nixon, and he wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. And Chuck Colson talks about how it was interesting that they would host world leaders, ambassadors, secretaries of state, cultural figures, all who had strong opinions, visions, ideals about the way they think, wanted things to be and things they were coming in to tell the president and all his men. But he said it was amazing that how so many of them, once they got into the Oval Office and saw all the trappings, just how quick their resolve would melt. That, that, that they would just begin rounding off the rough edges of their points and their resolutions. And he, he would talk about how they would take them, in, take them in to see the Situation Room right off the Oval Office. And remember, the, the Situation Room moved decades ago to the Pentagon. But he would still show them the old Situation Room just to put a little bit of scare into them. But Colson says, invariably, 
over his time in the White House, do you know who capitulated the most? Do you know who, in the moment of testing, came? Who most often moderated and mediated their position? He said, invariably, without, without exception, it was religious leaders. It was the churchmen. Think of all the things Joseph, at this point, could be tempted to say as he heads on out the door, right? Well, Pharaoh, I, I appreciate the opportunity Thank you for giving me a seat at the table. Let's find a solution here that accommodates everyone's worldview. Let's, let's, no need for anyone to put their idols. Everybody gets to keep their idols. Let's, let's talk reasonably among one another. But that's not what Joseph says. And, and, and Pharaoh puts it in such stark language, it's shocking. It would have been shocking for the original readers to read this. Look at verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. In the Hebrew, that's one word, by the way. And I'm not going to say it because it'll sound like I'm cursing or something, right? And somebody will post it on YouTube. No, this is one word. It's a rebuke. No way is one translation. May it never be. Hogwash. Forget about it, Pharaoh. This is an emphatic no. And then he says, it's God who will reveal. Now, I want you to look at the number of times that Joseph references God in this story. Verse 16, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Look at verses 25 and 28. God has revealed what he is about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God. It's as if Joseph is an Old Testament prophet, which he is. And he's coming on the scene to the nation of Israel, to the rulers of the world, saying, behold, seven years, Pharaoh. Kent Hughes, to quote him again, says about Joseph here, Joseph is giving it to them. Church, we are in a Joseph-like moment. The world is Pharaoh. And the world, like Pharaoh, is in the middle of a nightmare that it has no answers to. And we have to ask, what are we saying? Not what are they saying, what are we saying? What are we pointing people to? You see, politics, protests, Social media rants, they cannot bear the weight for what God's people are called to carry this season. The only thing that can bear this weight is the Word of God. It's, it's the people of God speaking the Word of God about the grace of God, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole story is about. It's a polemic by Joseph against the idols of the age. Who is the one true God? Whether our culture knows it or not, that's what it's asking. That's what it is excised about. Who is God? Who, is, who reigns around here? Who has ultimate sway and authority? In church, we have to realize something. The church is the only one who can answer that. We, we think about Peter, 
When, when Jesus looked at the, uh, the disciples and said, are you guys going to desert me too? And Peter didn't know a lot by that point, but he did know, well, Jesus, where are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Folks, only the church has the words of eternal life. See, I, I see us as your pastor getting animated and worked up about a lot of things. And there are a lot of words in this season but I'm not always sure we're saying the most important things. Let's make our words count. People are looking for life. They are looking for answers. And they don't need the same old, same old. They don't, know, they don't need what they can get out there. See, when someone asks, Tell me, how's COVID going for you and your family? How are you guys doing this season? Oh, those politicians. Oh, those busybodies. Oh, all these irresponsible people not taking this seriously. Oh, this, this, this season stinks. Is, is, that, is that what we're saying? Or are we saying, you know, it's hard. But we're having to lean into God. We're having to trust him. He is the only thing that is unchanging in this world. He is the only thing that's constant. The rest, I I don't know the answers to all this. Not that it's unimportant, but let, let me tell you about the most important thing. Four Oaks, this is not a complicated algorithm. You don't need an evangelism class for this. You just need to speak about where your hope is. And obviously, if your hope is not in him, you have nothing to bring to the table. But see, Joseph has been in that cell for 13 years, and all he has is God. All he has is hope in him. And let's see what God does with that. Point number three, the favor of God. Pit to prison, prison to palace. Now here it comes, palace to pinnacle. How does Pharaoh respond to all this? Interesting The Spirit of God is in you, Joseph. Clearly, Joseph, God has shown this to you. Now, understand something. This is not conversion. Okay, this is is a recognition. This is an affirmation. This is is a, a reluctant way of Pharaoh acknowledging that, you know what? Your words, the Word of God, have made a mark. Please understand something, church. God's Word always leaves a mark. You may not see it. You may not see it in your lifetime. You may not see it tomorrow. You may not see it this decade. But God's word never returns to him null and void. You just never know how God is going to use his word in someone's life. And so it says here that he appoints Joseph Viceroy. Sounds like something from Phantom Menace, let's be honest, okay? But he he literally makes... Pharaoh, I'm sorry, Joseph, his right-hand man. Now, there's a song in the musical Hamilton, which I quote one out of three sermons unapologetically, called Right-Hand Man, right? And it means that while Washington was the most, was the supreme leader, the supreme figure, everybody understood that. You don't mess with George Washington. But let me tell you, his right-hand man, Alexander Hamilton, was a close second. Because anything that Hamilton wrote... He wrote on behalf of Washington. Anything that he spoke 
on behalf of Washington. He, he spoke, he spoke on behalf of Washington. Anything he did, any command he said, he was an extension of the authority of the most powerful man in America at that time. That's Joseph in a few hours. See, in, in the, this, Moses takes us through this whole investiture process where Pharaoh is giving his authority to Joseph. And this is kind of an ordination. We see it with the, with the ring, the power, the chariot, um, the administration, the delegation. And by the way, not the main point of this sermon, but listen, one of the things that speaks to the historicity of the Bible and of this story is that we have extra biblical historical documents that tell us all about this sort of investiture, investiture process. And it's just, this, is, this story is accurate to the T. Just a reminder, these are not fairy tales. This is real history. The real sovereign God working in real people's lives. But I want us to note two particular things about Joseph's witness right here. And these are so important for us. Number one, first, upon getting this commission, what does Joseph do? Joseph goes to work. You see, for Joseph, God's eternal decree and providence don't negate the need for hard work, diligence, and obedience. See, in our modern philosophical way, we think about these things. We think, well, God's revealed the future. It's all said and done. Seven years of plenty, tons of leftover, seven years of famine, tons tons of food. Forgetting this crucial issue, who gathers the grain? Does it just magically appear? No, you see, Joseph is motivated, compelled. It says in the text, he went throughout the land, mobilizing resources, mobilizing people. Here's a good lesson for us, church. God is going to win the day. God's going to draw his people. God's going to win the world. God's going to build his church. But it's going to be through you and through me. This is why Paul, who makes the clearest statement of the absolute sovereignty of God in, in Romans 9. It says it's all of God's grace. It's all of God's sovereign will. And then we find him in Romans 10 saying, but listen, people, how will they be saved if they have not heard? And how will they hear if you don't go? And, and if you don't go, you can't speak. You see, God's sovereignty presses us into mission. God's sovereignty presses us into action. It presses us into praying, into serving, to sharing our faith, having a testimony, being a blessing. If your understanding of God's sovereignty is one that immobilizes you or makes you lazy or thinks that like somebody else will take care of that, you don't understand the sovereignty of God. Joseph understood the sovereignty of God. And in it, we see that echo of Paul, don't we? What does he say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Joseph is working out this sovereign plan of God because it is God who has worked in him first. And let it be the same for us. Number two, notice that Joseph does not retreat spatially or geographically. In other words, Joseph doesn't go to his underground bunker. He doesn't retreat to his co-op farm and doesn't talk to anybody for a year off the grid. 
Joseph engages fully in his culture. And this was not easy, by the way, because what we see here is a full-scale assault on Joseph and his religious traditions by Pharaoh in Egypt. Joseph was renamed as Pharaoh, and that was a powerful way of co-opting and assimilating someone into the culture. They gave him a wife. He married into the upper echelon of royalty. He had to change his dress. He had to be around little bitty idols all day. He, had, he couldn't speak in Hebrew. He had to speak in Egyptian or whatever Egyptians speak, right? Joseph is under enormous pressure to conform, to syncretize, to capitulate, to compromise, anything just to hold on to that inner ring. Yet, listen at what Joseph does. It says he named his children Ephraim and Manasseh. You say, what, what, what's so big about that? Guys, these are Hebrew names. And you do have to feel somewhat sympathetic toward the boys, right? They were going to walk around with names that meant God's blessing and God's grace. See, this was Joseph's way of saying, I'm fully in this culture. I'm participating in all its activities of being a good citizen and doing what God has called me to do. But here are my stakes in the ground. I worship the living God. And so their names were a testimony to the down payment that God had promised to the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have to remember, up to this point, other than Jacob himself, Joseph, among all his brothers, is probably the only faithful follower of God. And he puts his claim down, and he says, I am trusting in the Lord. So, Four Oaks, don't, don't retreat. Walk in humility and speak the word. Now, we're not saying there's not dangers. There are so many dangers. But just because there's bad marriages doesn't mean we abolish marriage. Or just because there's bad preaching, we don't abolish preaching. You get the whole idea, Right? The evangelical church, Christian leaders, it's, the, the landscape is littered, right, with, with those. We read about them even this week who have not handled their platform well, who've had high-profile positions but have compromised and walked away. They've succumbed to the trappings of power. So, yes, we need to be diligent, but we need to go. Into the world, Joseph went into the world. We must go, church. Now, as we look at Joseph's example, let me be clear about something. I alluded to this at the beginning. Please understand, church, that the point of this story is not just you obey God and great things will happen. This is, this is not a Joel Osteenism, right? rags to riches, your best life now. Just keep trusting God and eventually you're going to get material blessings. We have to understand, don't be naive. There was a deep, deep personal cost to Joseph in all this. Don't you think he would have traded that moment in the palace for all those 13 years in prison just to be back with his dad? Just to be back in his home country? Don't you think he would have traded that in an instant? See, you see the high cost for Joseph in the way that he named his children. They literally na- name, uh, part of their names mean forget my hardship 
And God has delivered me in the land of my affliction. Here he is. This is probably maybe close to 20 years by the time he has these two boys. But yet his heart still aches, right? He was homeless, betrayed, falsely accused, kidnapped, imprisoned, framed, forgotten, abandoned by his family. And those costs are real. Moses doesn't spend a ton of time in this, in this story giving us an inside look at Joseph's heart, but we get one right now, and it was hard. But there was nothing for him to do. He just, know, he just knew, I want to be faithful. I want to keep going. I want to be a witness. I want to be a blessing. This passage ends, verse 57, and it's one of those, whoa, we cannot wait to see what happens Next week, verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. For oaks, the famine over our culture is very severe. And they are coming, whether they know it or not, to buy grain. And they are asking, who can give us the bread of life. What will we say? What will we say to our neighbors? What do we say to our social media friends? What do we say to our coworkers, our playgroups, the people at our workout facilities, that our people at our jobs, our roommates, the people that are in our class? This is our Joseph Light moment. You know, I'll close with this. You know, maybe of all the people in the Old Testament. Maybe the person whose life and ministry was most like Christ on a personal level, I think, was Joseph's. The the parallels are uncanny. You see, Jesus came down to earth, shed the trappings of divinity, the privileges of divinity, to become a man, a humble man who could be sick and die and bleed just like you and me. He had no place to lay his head. He took on the humble garb of humanity. And along the way, he was falsely charged, falsely accused, falsely framed. It was unfair, unjust suffering, but all for the greater good, which was the salvation of his people. Brooks, are you one of them? Are you one of those people? Are you trusting in him? Are you clinging to him? then by the grace of God, let's speak about him. Let's pray.